This is The Hidden Wire Podcast, episode 978, my interview with Lisa Crone about her book, Story or Die, how story is used to change minds. Enjoy. Hey, Lisa, welcome to The Hidden Wire Podcast. Great to have you here today. And it's fabulous to be here. Thank you so much for asking me. I, um, I look forward to this conversation. It's a really, really cool topic about changing minds, but um, more importantly, about the story um, mm-hmm. to do that. But before we get there, what's your background and, and you know, your mm-hmm. reason for writing this book, I suppose? Well, I mean, my background is in, <laughs> I want to say, is in story itself. Um, you know, I went from working in publishing to um, working uh, in film, in, in, in sort of television before it became reality TV, and then in working for the studios and for um, agents, uh, reading books to film. Mm. So uh, I was a story analyst, meaning I would go in and I would read manuscripts, many of which they used to be the sort of thing that that nobody else would read but someone like me. But now with with so much self publishing, anybody can read manuscripts and sort of in this in this uh, in this form. And you know, my job wasn't just to say. Um, you know, is it good or bad, but to say why. And that's really what pulled me so deeply into, you know, into what I'm doing now. Mm. And uh, because I realized that what we were taught pulls us into a story. What we've been taught literally since Aristotle pulls us into a story turns out to be completely untrue. <laughs> that, that very often, as I say to writers all the time, everything you've been taught about writing is wrong. What do you um, mean? And yeah, that was very exciting. And for me, the lucky thing was at the time I was sort of realizing that because when I had to analyze these manuscripts, I had to say, you know, if they didn't work, why? And that's when I realized that what pulled me in and why they didn't work had nothing to do with what I'd been taught taking writing and literature classes in college. Um, and lucky for me at that time, neuroscience was having a big boom mm. and it went from sort of well, this is what I think is true. I know this is what pulls me in, and I, I can write about it and teach about it too. No, wait a minute. This is biology. <laughs> I cannot tell you how exciting that was. And you know, and from there, everything you know, everything just took off. So I, you know, was teaching for a long time in the UCLA Extension Writers Program, and then uh, in New York City at the School of Visual Arts, they had an MFA program. Or they do have an MFA program in, uh, in visual narrative. And, uh, you know, and that's where my heart has been for such a long time because it, it isn't, I mean, story isn't just something that we come to because stories are entertaining. Stories are entertaining, so we'll pay attention to them because we don't turn to story to escape reality. It turns out, biologically, in terms of the way we're wired, we turn to story to navigate reality. And the truth is the only way ever to engage, persuade, or change anybody's mind is through story, is through narrative, because we think in story. We think in narrative. We think in story. Hmm. We do. We think of everything in terms of narrative. What were we taught previously that was Uh, About story? Hmm. Well, let's start with, there's an interesting an interesting study, actually, that was done recently. Um, what we were taught about story was that the two things that pulled us in were good writing, so lovely, luscious sentences, and the plot. And so if you learned to write lovely, luscious sentences and they came up with a rip-roaring plot, you would have a story that would pull us in. And if, you know, when you did all of that, if you didn't write a story that pulled us in, it meant you didn't have the talent. And it turns out that, I mean, first of all, it's not about writing at all, because when you think about words, words are just, I mean, words when they're spoken are just sounds, words when they're written are squiggles on the page, you know, or with sign language, it's just your hands moving. Words are empty vehicles, they're nothing. Words are conveyor of conveyors of meaning, and meaning comes from story. And what we're looking for in every story is not the external plot or the things that are happening, which is what Aristotle said about about a couple thousand years ago. Aristotle said, plot first, character second. And that has sort of been the cornerstone of writing and story and the way it's taught from then to now. And I'll tell you, there was an interesting study that was done recently out of uh, McMaster University, which is in Hamilton, Ontario, up in Canada, 
And it was uh, the, the lead researcher was a guy, a neuroscientist named Stephen Brown. And he, I loved this because he literally said, he's like singing my song. Um, and it was an interview in Vox and then in the scholarly paper that he wrote, he said that he went into this experiment because he thought that, you know, what Aristotle said was true, was that when people's brains come online, when we first meet any story, that the first thing that we're looking for is the plot. And then after that comes, you know, character. Hmm. So he, you know, got subjects and he, he put them in a scanner so they could do an fMRI. And, and he read them. And what he read them, and this really sort of comes down into story itself, he didn't put them in the scanner and then, like, you know, start to read them War and Peace. Right? Mm. It wasn't like, I'll read you a novel or you'll watch a movie and, you know, we'll see what part of your brain lights up. It was short uh, uh, headlines that he read them because what happens when we get any fact or anything in life is your brain instantly spins it into story to see why it's going to matter to you and what you should do about it. So he wanted to see what the brain was going to spin these these uh, these headlines into, and what part of the brain was going to go online first. Right. And the headlines were were really simple things. They were things like um, surgeon finds scissors in patient, or fisherman saves boy from freezing lake. I mean, literally, those were those were two of the things that he read. Yeah, yeah. And what he discovered was that the part of the brain that came online was the part that mentalizes, meaning the first thing that people were looking for was whose story is this? What's their agenda? What do they want? What's their motivation? What are they afraid of? In other words, character first, then plot. They weren't looking at things like, gee, find scissors in patient. I wonder what kind of scissors. <laughs> they weren't thinking that. Or freezing lake. I, I wonder what lake that was. It's always about how something is affecting someone. And that really is... And does that relate back to the individual as well? So thinking about whose story is this, but how it affects me too, the story? Absolutely. We come to every story. We're hardwired in what's known as our cognitive unconscious to to ask one question, which is how is this going to help me better make it through the night? When we are pulled into a story, think of story. I like to liken it to like a Vulcan mind meld, you know, out of Star Trek. A what? Where it's like, <laughs> a, a, like a Vulcan mind meld, meaning uh. that when you're lost in a story, and again, whether it's a headline, whether somebody's, you know, telling you a story around the water cooler, whether it's a mission statement, the avatar, your avatar within the story is that main character, is that person who things are happening to. And we're not there to see what the person might do we're there to understand why they're doing it and the why is always internal and that is what rivets us this internal struggle that we're going through to try to figure out how do i solve this external problem because you know in in a nutshell a story is about how faced with an unavoidable external problem the character protagonist or person has to make some sort of internal change in order to solve that problem. In other words, hmm. some belief, some worldview needs to get shifted in order for them to figure out the solution of the problem. Otherwise, it would just be, you know, there's a screw. Do I undo it with a Phillips screwdriver or a flat? I mean, who cares? It's it's always something internal. And, and that really, again, is the secret of story. Story isn't about an external change. It's about an internal change. So you have to tap into that internal why. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's very, very relevant to the show, isn't it, really? It is, 100%. The hidden why. I mean, yes, it's always about that. Because think about it. I mean, because if you look at people on the surface, I mean, I always say stories about the difference between what we say out loud and what we're really thinking when we say it, right? Because, I mean, how often is what you say and what you're thinking the same thing? And which one is more interesting? And which one is juicier? And which one is more revealing? And it's what we're thinking. Because, I mean, most of the time when anything happens, we're wondering, why did that person do that? Hmm. And often the reason we come up with is wrong. It's not the surface. It's almost never the surface reason. Mm. And what's really interesting is that is that why. Absolutely, it's always about the why. The um, tapping into that. So that's a that's an interesting one. I mean, this 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 show started um, from that that curiosity to someone's internal mm -hmm. motivators, I suppose, and that why. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, and how if you can tap into that, you can better um, well, understand them to, to do whatever you need to, to do, whether it's persuade them or change their minds or sell them something. And it actually Absolutely. came from a sales course that I did um, based on real estate. Mm-hmm. It was about, you know, find, find the seller's internal why, why they're selling, um, and that's what you, you need to understand to help them with their journey. And if you can do that, exactly. you're going to be in a better, better position to help them, um, which will obviously help you as the salesperson as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so 100% t- tell us a little bit about, um, I mean, the methodology behind this. Like how do we now use this idea of story to help change minds? Well, I mean, the first thing that you have to do, because it, it would be easy for me to explain to you sort of what a story is, which we were just talking about, and then how to create one. But if you're trying to change someone's mind, the step before that is to really figure out, as you just said, well, what? here's what you want them to do. Why would it matter to them? What are they already doing that you're asking them to give up in order to do the thing? that you want them to do that thing that they'd have to give up. What does it mean to them? Why are they doing that? What meaning are they reading into it? And on top of that, that thing that you want them to do, that they're not doing at the moment. The big question is why not? Hmm. And the why not is never because he's never heard of it before. It's always what would that, what I like to call misbelief, What is that misbelief that they've got that's keeping them from hearing your call to action, that's keeping them from hearing what it is that you want them to know? And again, a a misbelief, just to say, is rarely a misbelief about something, you know, logistic, like, you know, I thought I thought the world was flat and you'll never believe it. It's actually round. Or, you know, I thought she was my mother and it turned out she was my sister. Someone's got some splaining to do. Now, those things might be true, but a misbelief is usually a misbelief about human nature or how we see ourselves or what the meaning that we, the internal meaning that we are reading into, whatever that act is or that thing is that we want to change someone's mind about and, you know, persuade them to do. And that takes work. That mm. takes empathy. Because the problem is we're wired to think – I mean the, the problem that marketers and people run into all the time because you, know, you want to just give facts. And the problem and the reason that giving someone the facts to change their mind doesn't work is, is first of all, because of, of the curse of knowledge, um, which is something Chip and Dan Heath write about in the their – The curse of knowledge. Book, <laughs> Yeah, the curse of knowledge and literally what that is, again, it's biological. It's that once we understand something and we really get it, it's been relegated especially to what's known as our cognitive unconscious, which is where most of what we know lives and breathes. It's nigh on impossible to put ourselves into the mindset of someone who doesn't understand it. So we tend to assume that if we give someone a fact, they can unpack it and they know exactly what it means and they know exactly what we're trying to tell them. And often they can't unpack it and they have no clue about what we're talking about. And then the second problem is that while to change someone's mind, we might be giving them a fact that uh, is objectively true. And let's imagine that it is. Hmm. It's the problem is, is it the subjective meaning that we and when I say we, I mean, each and every one of us reads into the fact is different. I mean, the Mm. meaning that we read into things comes from one place and one place only. And that's what our past experiences taught us those things mean. The problem is, the big problem is that we're literally biologically wired to assume that everybody else sees the same reality we do and reads the same meaning in it to it we do. (laughs) So that we give people facts that not only we assume that they can unpack and they know exactly what the fact means, But we assume that the meaning of the fact, the meaning we're reading into it, meaning how we feel about the fact, is also implied by the fact itself. Like the fact owns it. It is coming from the fact. It's not coming from us. Hmm. And what happens when we use facts is therefore either if we give someone a fact they can't unpack, it just flies right over their head because they've got no, you know, they've got no context to give it meaning. And, you know, the part of our brain that's looking for meaning is, is going to miss it entirely because we can't unpack it to see how it will relate to us or, or anything. Hmm. And the, uh, the problem is 
when we give someone a fact that they can unpack and a fact that contradicts something that they already believe, and this is this is the, the, the real thing where people get into trouble, which is we are biologically hardwired to get angry when that happens. And when we give someone a fact, I mean, we can see it because the world is so polarized at the moment, you know, and you give someone a fact that you think is going to change their mind about something that you think is like so completely beyond the pale. And instead of taking it in and considering it and deciding to do research, they just get mad. The same way that we tend to get mad when someone gives us a fact that flies in the face of what we deeply believe. Hmm. And I, we don't have time to go into all the, all the biological details, but that's literally biology. That's how we're wired. We don't decide to get mad. We don't get mad because we're you know, self-centered or weak or emotional or you know, have been deeply misinformed. We get mad because it's biology. So we get mad because somehow that fact challenges our pre-existing belief and that upsets us because we feel that our belief is important for our sense of well-being or survival, I guess, historically maybe. Yes, our survival and especially because that belief not only becomes part of our own self-identity, right? So it doesn't feel like the belief that's being challenged. It feels like we're being challenged and our intelligence is being challenged. Because our belief is our story, isn't it, really? Yes, exactly. And even more so, our belief is what ties us to our group, or if you go all the way back to prehistoric times, to our tribe. And in prehistoric times, if we did anything and we were ostracized from our tribe, it literally was a death sentence. So, I mean, that's part of why we are biologically hardwired to have that reaction. I mean, fun fact, when someone gives you a fact that really flies in the face of what you believe and that cues you to your to your, to your tribe <laughs> your blood rushes to your thighs just in case no. you've got to make a quick getaway because as far as your your brain and really? your body is concerned yeah it's really interesting as, as far as your brain and your body is concerned it's as if someone has come and said you know put up your dukes we respond in the exact same way as a, as a physical assault and again that's not a decision it's not a weakness it's biology just how it is mm-hmm that's incredible, hey? I like that little fact. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know that's a, a, a fact. But it's, you know, it's true. And I think the more we know that, it allows us, I mean, first of all, not to fall into the, you know, the, the, the pitfall of just giving someone facts and they get angry and thinking, what's wrong with them? And it also allows us to move past it and find the little hacks that are going to allow us then to actually convince someone of something, knowing that mm. giving them the facts straight just, you know, is not going to work. The only time the facts works is when you're giving them the facts that already that already justify what they already believe. So in other words, you're not going to get them to change that way. You're just going to get them to double down on what they already believe. Yeah. Um, you know, facts that confirm, you know, our beliefs. So, so a fact that confirms it would make you happy, obviously, and a fact yeah, that is, totally. is against what you believe, that'll obviously make you mad and get that blood mm-hmm. flowing to your thighs, which is interesting. What about a fact that's presented to you, like this one that you've just mentioned, the blood goes to my thighs? I don't have a belief for that in either way. Um, so that's just a neutral fact, and I have right. no reaction to that other than, oh, that's interesting. Exactly. And some neutral facts are just not interesting at all. That one happens to be a neutral fact, but it's interesting because it fits into something and it busts a myth. And I think that makes that one really interesting. But again, it's also interesting because we have a context to give it meaning. And the context is, yeah, gosh, I've noticed that, that when someone says something that totally flies in the face of what I believe, I do get angry that's really interesting. And then, of course, you know, the fun fact is, again, it's the opposite of what we would think was true, because why, if somebody says something that that contradicts what your belief, why would blood rush to your thighs? It's surprising, and it breaks a pattern because we wouldn't think it was true, and that makes it interesting. But, mm. yeah, but it's also a neutral fact, because it's not like we're, like we're going to do anything about it, or could, or would, or should. That's so cool. I like it. So when we... Um we have to be mindful then of, of how we deliver things. We have to deliver it. Mm-hmm. Do, do we deliver it more neutrally then? Do we, we represent a fact without having our beliefs behind it? Because I guess anytime I mention a fact to someone, I'm in real estate myself. And if I'm talking about a market, you know, statistic or something, um, I'm talking about 
with how it relates to my beliefs, I guess. And um, perhaps exactly. if I present a fact and then put a narrative to it as well to help that fact be understood by the other party, I could be doing myself an injustice. Yeah, I mean, I mean, really, the thing to think of is, I mean, because that's a problem, and that's just to say, that's another, and I'm saying you fall into this this trap, but one of the traps that people fall into is because they can unpack the facts and because they know and already believe in what it is they want someone else to do, they tend to use facts that would convince them, as opposed to, and this is the trick, literally stepping out of your reality and stepping into their reality, because the question is, given what it is that you want them to do, well, why does that matter to them? Hmm. What in their life, how would they unpack that given what they want and what their agenda is? How does this fit into that? Yeah, That would be the question. It's like what you said a minute ago about if someone wants to sell a house, I mean, it's easy to think, well, they want to make a bunch of money or they want to have got this other house over there, but they might have a completely different reason. And that reason always will be driven by emotion, which is something that's been vastly misunderstood. In fact, the myths around emotion, emotion is the opposite of what we think that it is. But it's finding out, again, how they feel about it and why they feel that and the real reason they're selling and the real thing that they're looking for. I mean, it might not be, you know, a huge profit. It might be someone who loves the house or who understands. I mean, I have no idea what it would be. But chances are it's something much deeper than whatever it seems like on the surface. Mm. Getting down to that and then telling a story or 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 tailing your sales pitch to what it is they really want is, you know, is a way, is the only way to get at someone's attention for one thing, because they're going to feel why it matters to them. And if they can't feel why it matters to them, they're not going to pay attention anyway. No, no, you really got to tap into that, don't you? So I guess mm-hmm. it's, it's through um, then learning um, a part of the process and, or learning about the other person that you're, you're trying mm-hmm. to change the mind of. Um, and I, I say change the mind, it always sounds negative, doesn't it, when you say it like that? Like mm-hmm. you're trying to, <laughs> I know. to do something that's not <laughs> right. Them, manipulate, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, manipulate, yeah. So exactly. it's, it's really, how do you find the balance there? That's another question. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so you really got to listen to a person and ask them questions to, to better right. understand them before you delve into a fact presentation and storytelling. So you can yes, alter your exactly. story. That's right, huh? Yes, you can create one that way. And the the good part about it is that it does create empathy because you're not looking for what they're doing that you want to change. And you're looking for not just the surface why, but the deeper down why, meaning what does it mean to them? Why why is doing it this way? Did they feel that that is, and I hate using this expression because it's so overused these days and so general, but in terms of why are they doing it? Why do they feel like this is what expresses their most authentic self? You know, how can you show them that what they think is helping them, whatever this belief is you want to change, that is actually holding them back? How can you show them that what you're asking them to do, this change, is going to actually get them what they want and make them feel more like they are, like, like more like they're, again, to use that expression, their most authentic self. But that means having to really empathize. It means having to step out of why you would do whatever it is they're doing and try to really figure out why they're doing it and, and, and do it in a way that is, that doesn't, you know, that you're not rolling your eyes or, or, you know, or feeling really snarky about it, but really going down into it and, and accepting it Hmm. because the reason that we do everything, as I said earlier, is because it's what our past experiences taught us works. That's where we're coming from. And that past experience, you know, is often wrong and often things change and often it's leading us in the wrong direction. And in life, the only way that we change, because since we learn everything experientially, there are only two ways that we change. One is we have another experience that shows us that the first one was wrong. Or through story, because story is the world's first virtual reality. Because if we had to learn everything through experience, most of us, a lot of us wouldn't be here. 
um, you know, we, we, we learn a lot about the things to avoid or the things to do Three in story. story form. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been around for eons, hasn't it? The, the idea of telling mm-hmm. story back to probably tribal days where they used to sit around and use story to explain the, the nature of, of things. Um, oh, yeah. And you look at the Absolutely. indigenous people of Australia, you know, they were, mm-hmm. they were big storytellers. Yeah. And, and that passed on for, for, yeah, mm-hmm. thousands of years with them. Amazing. Right. But, and, but that's because it's literally built into the architecture of our brain. Because we literally make, I mean, it's like you, me, each person is the main character in our life story and everything that happens and everything that we encounter or think about, we analyze based on one thing and one thing only. And that is, how is this going to affect me given my agenda? Is it going to help me or is it going to hurt me? And and I don't mean that again in a we're so selfish or self-centered way but in a survivalist way, because, you know, helping or hurting someone in their agenda might be, you know, my agenda is to turn around and, you know, uh, and raise money to help the homeless. You know, that's my agenda. So it's going to help me or hurt me. It doesn't mean that one's agenda is purely, you know, selfish or self-centered, but it means that that's the way that we would, you know, read meaning into everything. And everybody has an, an agenda, you know, what it is we want, what it is we believe in, what it is we want to bring forth into the world. And we analyze, like I said, everything based on will this help me or will this hurt me? And that's Mm. why when we get a fact that we can't unpack, it just flies right over our head because we think it's neutral. It doesn't have anything to do with me. And I'm way on the lookout for things that that I do need to pay attention to. And I mean, that's, again, that's brain science. The thinking part of the brain Mm. is there to filter out everything other than what do I need to look at in the moment because it might be a you know it might be someone throwing a rock at me and I got a duck that's yeah. what our thinking brain is is there for everything else is handled by you know what's known as our cognitive unconscious which is which is kind of important because they say studies show that we make 35,000 decisions a day and of those 35,000 decisions you know we're only consciously aware of about 70 of them you know, as I'm fond of saying, and I think the bulk of those 70 decisions are like, you know, should I wear the yellow socks or the blue socks? You know, stuff that yeah. that doesn't doesn't even matter. And I think some of them, they say 35,000 decisions. I think some of them, and this sort of lets you know what your cognitive unconscious does for you, are like if you're typing. You know, imagine, I can't even think of this. It gives me a, makes my fingers twist up to think about it. But imagine if you were typing and you had to, like, consciously think of where each letter was on the keyboard and then how to spell the word you're spelling. And then, I mean, you, you wouldn't be able to do it it's like you Mm. automatically do it in fact often when i'm trying to type something and i i realize i've spelled the word wrong if i try to think about how to spell the word i can't and what i have to do is make my mind blank and then my fingers do it (laughs) like my fingers know how to spell and i don't because it's coming from my cognitive unconscious and not from you know my conscious brain on that level the part that that you know that can focus and that that works things out if that makes sense yeah, it does. It does, absolutely. Have you read a book by um, Lisa Feldman Barrett called How Emotions Are Made? No, no. You, I have you not should actually. put that on your list. Um, I think I you'd really you enjoy it. Yeah. She um, yeah. she gave the example of, you know, when we touch something hot that otherwise mm-hmm. we wouldn't um, think was hot. Mm-hmm. Like if you, for example, the stove was on and you didn't know it was on mm-hmm. and you'd put mm-hmm. your hand there and you'd actually put your hand on a hot bit of you know, flame or whatever right. it might be, but you actually don't click with it until it, you know, mm-hmm. until after you've touched it. Right. And that just shows, you know, about that unconscious processing, about mm-hmm. making decisions, you know. It's oh, yeah, um, absolutely fascinating absolutely. stuff. 70 yeah, of them, 35,000 decisions a day. Wow. Is a lot. Is a lot. And the truth is, and this is, this is not, this is, this is, this is not metaphor, this is fact. The truth is, if you couldn't feel and process emotion, you couldn't make a single rational decision. I mean, that's Mm. one of the biggest bill of goods we've been sold. Again, going all the way back to Plato, that you've got reason on one side and emotion on the other, and they're mutually exclusive, and reason is what we're supposed to use to make sense of things, and emotion is what's going to come in and cloud our judgment, and we're going to make a bad decision, and whenever you make any decision, you've got to keep emotion at bay. And that just turns out to be completely not only untrue but impossible hmm. um which i think is is really fa- i mean that's for, so you think most decisions are made through emotion not through reason or logic i think 
every decision at the end of the day is emotion based. It's it's not either or. It's both and. But emotions the decider. In other words, we don't make decisions based on our rational analysis of the situation. We make decisions based on how the rational analysis makes us feel. If we couldn't feel emotion, we couldn't make a single rational decision. That's brain science and biology. That's not. That's yeah, it's not, pretty interesting, um, isn't it? Yeah, because you look at philosophy, and and philosophy is based on reason, um, and that practice of you know reasoning. I suppose um, again, I'm not an expert in this field, but it would make sense to me that if you study philosophy daily, um, you're mm-hmm. basically conditioning your mind to hopefully make better decisions moving forward. Not really. Um, uh-uh. that's, it doesn't work that way. That's that, that's the that's the bill of goods we've been sold. And it literally doesn't work that way. We're not wired to do that. It literally comes back to the way that we're wired to make sense of things hmm. and the way that that is then encoded in our brain and in our nervous system vis-a-vis our, our, you know, our amygdala and our limbic system. And it, it literally is a very nice model. It just turns out not to be true. It just hmm. is not true. Without literally, I mean, you want, me, you want me to give you a quick example? Don't you think? Of, don't you think that reason will have uh, an influence over your emotion eventually? Like if I, and I, I totally get what you're saying. Like that emotion still has to be the the driving force, and that has to make sense to me, for example, mm-hmm. yeah. to alter my decisions. But that reasoning, um, you know, obviously won't. I won't come to a good reason if that emotion doesn't sort of check it out anyway. Well, the emotion is what tells you it's right or wrong. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think the problem that we're having, even even in in the way that we're talking about it now, is because we have made the mistake of of thinking of emotion as something negative and something that's going to make us do a wrong thing, and that we have sort of summed up emotion as the term emotional, which is pretty much, you know, completely consumed the notion of emotion itself, we tend to think of it as if it comes in, it's going to pull us in a wrong direction. Mm. The thing is, we're terrified of emotion because the goal of emotion, which is actually, I mean, emotion is like that example that you just gave of like you put your hand in the fire and physically you feel the pain and now you yank it out. Emotional pain, social pain is what has kept us alive. And it travels the same neural path- pathways as physical pain. And, and emotional pain or just emotional feeling is what let, lets us know what things mean to us. Emotion mainlines or telegraphs meaning. That's what it does. Hmm. But we've tended to not trust it and think that by definition it's going to, like I said, we'll, we'll do a wrong thing if we feel any emotion at all. And as I said, the truth is if you couldn't feel emotion, you couldn't pick <laughs> a solution to a problem. You could enumerate all the different possible solutions to a problem. You couldn't pick one because that comes from emotion. Mm. By definition, as as a neuroscientist Antonio Damasio says, there's nothing that we ever experience in life that doesn't bring with it a chorus of emotion, which is a chemical reaction, that your brilliant brain and nervous system then immediately translates into feeling that lets you know what you feel about it and therefore you know what you should do i mean it's data doesn't does not do it again not to say that you don't reason also that you're not thinking about it in that way but at the end of the day after all of the reasoning it's still going to come back to how you feel about it hmm you can change that but with how you this is a very could get very deep. This this topic, but <laughs> indeed. I, I really feel like same with experience. Like we can change, mm-hmm. we can change mm-hmm. our feelings and our emotional coding based mm-hmm. on what we experience next. Absolutely, um, yes. You of know, because they say that Absolutely. you know we're just hardwired one certain way, and everything's based on past experience, and that's going to determine how we act going forward. But we can still influence how we act going forward through you know, a different practice or, or conditioning mm-hmm. Absolutely. through reason and logic. But it's still, yeah, it's still going to be emotion that drives the decisions. Right. And I wouldn't say it was reason and logic that makes us change. It's, I mean, think about it. If you're going to have... Oh, I lost you there. You there? You hear me? Yep. There you are. Yeah. If you're going to use reason and logic to make a quote-unquote change, you've already 
and I mean you personally, obviously, but a person has already acknowledged a problem. Hmm. And yeah, for sure they're going to think about it. But at the end of the day, there was a feeling that made them think they had to think about it and deal with it because it was a problem to begin with. It's the only way we know that something's a problem is because we feel something about it. Feeling, yeah. So absolutely, absolutely, experience is how we change. And as I said, it's either like literal experience, meaning we're out in the world experiencing it, or through story, or through by this Vulcan mind meld. I mean, they say that when you're lost in a story, mind meld. it is. It's, it's like <laughs> the same areas of your brain light up that would light up if you were doing whatever that protagonist or main character is doing. I mean, literally, biologically, or that's what evolutionary biologists have looked into story that way, because, and I think we all know that feeling when you're lost in a story, and like the world around you is gone. You know, I mean, thinking about it with, with novels where, you know, you're tired and you're thinking, oh, just one more chapter and I'll, I'll go to bed. And then like, you know, the sun's coming up and you're thinking, oh my God, I stayed up all night. And in that time, even though you were exhausted when you started reading, you were in this whole other world, literally or offline. And what evolutionary biologists have looked at, which is, yeah, that's because story is the world's first virtual reality, because otherwise evolution would have beaten that out of us because we are vulnerable when we're lost in the story. Hmm. Story really is, as I, you know, I'm so fond of saying, was the world's first virtual reality, you know, minus the geeky visor. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Um, so your book is is on uh, Amazon um, and other places, I assume, and that's Story or Die, How to Use Brain Science to Engage, Persuade, and Change Minds in Business and Life, and in Life. Exactly. Um, available, yeah, March March release, so going great. It'd be a very interesting book to read, guys. Check it out, and um, I'll stick the link in the show notes for that. Have you got a few more minutes just for a few, couple of quick round sure. questions? Yeah? You bet. I know you've been thinking <laughs> on them, so we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll see what you come up with. What do you, do you have any routines that you believe contribute to your success? I would say not routine per se, other than, <laughs> other than caffeine in the morning, which is an absolute necessity. And I do my best work in the morning. But I think, and I think you were even asked, I think I have a motto that really helps. And that is, you got to love the suck. And by that, I mean, when I go in to do something that's difficult, and and I'm not saying that I do difficult things all the time, or that there aren't times I give up, because like everybody, absolutely that happens. Hmm. But I really have a routine of knowing that when I've got to do something new, when I've got to write something new or come into any kind of a new anything, it's going to be hard and I'm going to hate it. (laughs) And I'm going to want to get up and do anything else. And instead of being afraid of that, I've learned to embrace it and to go, yeah, that's just how it is. And that's okay. Come at me. I can do this. And even though in the beginning, I'm going to, I'm going to also think it sucks that's okay. That's par for the course because sort of, you know, the other motto I live by is whenever you're doing anything, especially something new, if you're not at least a little bit afraid of it, you're not doing it right. So, so those two things, you know, really do help. It's so true too. I that do that hard thing and do it first. I reckon, um, Anthony Robbins, Tony Robbins has, um, one that stuck with me for ages just said, you know, he learned how not to negotiate with his mind, um, because the mind will tell you it's comfortable in bed. I'm not going to get up, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. And your mind's trying to protect you. It's like, it's like, yeah, stay in bed. It's easy. You you can't, you can't get in trouble if you're just in bed. You know, if you don't try, you can't fail. So just, I mean, that's the irony. I mean, that. Not only that voice, but the mean voice in your head that's always telling you you're not doing it right. It thinks it's protecting you, mm. you know. And the, the irony is, it's is it's 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 what it's protecting you from is any kind of change, and it's protecting you from the wrong thing. But but yeah, it it actually thinks it's doing the right thing. Yeah, I uh, I like it. What's your definition of success? That's a really good question. I thought about that. And now let me ask you a question back. Do you mean me personally, what I would think of would be success for me or success in general? However you want to think about it. <laughs> You're going to throw it right back to me, aren't you? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think success is 
I think success is, and I'm going to ask answer first in general. I mean, I think a person is a success if they have a sense of purpose and they keep at it no matter what. Hmm. Doesn't mean they don't have downtime. Doesn't mean there aren't times they want to give up. Doesn't mean there aren't times they totally screw up. But it's really having that sense of purpose and then letting that drive you and, and, and being proactive about it. I mean, that really is. I think, I think a definition of success is being proactive. It makes such a difference. And for me, a definition of success is going out and I have my agenda is to change the world's view on certain things. One is emotion and one is the need to be able to step out of one's worldview and into someone else's worldview and be able to empathize with them and to find that place where, where we can really connect. Yeah. That's my goal more than anything else because nobody listens until they feel heard. Mm. And we try to change people's minds without really hearing what they believe and why they believe it. And I think once we come to that place together, we're going to find we're much more alike than we thought we were. And I think that's going to make such a big difference. So mm. any way that I can move that needle, for me, that's success. Yeah. And I think that's... I guess for you, tangible, but your success in doing that will be based on your general um, definition of mm-hmm. success, which will be to be proactive on that purpose. Yes, yeah. exactly. Because I think it's success almost- can only be internal anyway, can only be internally defined. It can't. There, there is, yeah. I don't know, maybe there is a way to measure success from an external point of view, but it's really based on the individual, isn't it? Exactly. What's, what they what's believe. your definition? What's your definition of success? I think it's it's very similar um, to yours. Mm-hmm. Is to to um, be able to to act with purpose um, in the efforts of living a, a happy life, mm-hmm. and then you have to look at well, what's a what's a happy life look like, and that's right. that's probably success to me. Um, yeah, you know, and that's different for everyone. A happy life for me could just be a a nice humble home, earning an income of X mm-hmm. amount, and um, having family time on the weekends, and you know, that's it. Someone else might be, you know changing the world in a, in a bigger way um, on, a, on a larger scale. So you really have to be comfortable with your internal purpose. And I think if you haven't found your internal purpose, um, which isn't handed to you or, or very unique mm-hmm. and it changes, but if you can find that internal purpose, that's when you find success. And most yeah. people, I think, are being guided by external measures and expectations and probably will never find success if that's the case. I, I agree. I think I think one of the biggest pitfalls that we have in the modern world is this notion that success has to do with money and happiness has to do with living a life of leisure. Hmm. I do not understand how that became what everybody aspires to because it sounds awful to me. <laughs> I mean, I think that people – even if you're, especially if, even if you're struggling to, to, to do what you need to do, and I don't mean struggling, I mean, it's, it, if you don't have enough, if you don't have enough to eat, if you don't have, you know, a roof over your head, that sucks and is horrible. And I, I don't think anybody should be in that position. Hmm. But even if you're in a place where you're struggling, and you're really trying to work and you're trying to make something happen and things aren't comfortable and soft and easy, but you have that sense of purpose that you're doing something that matters, that's happiness to me. I mean, mm. that's what happiness is, is, is feeling like you matter. If you mm. don't feel like you matter, I don't see how you could be happy. I don't see how having a fancy, that's why it shocks me, the consumerism, you know, like people buying, you know, things that are like super expensive for the sake of being expensive. Like there's apparently this purse that people buy is called a Birkin bag, I think. And it's like $30,000 and it's, it's also really ugly, but it's like, why would, Anybody spend thirty thousand dollars on a purse? I have no idea, and yet, you know, somehow I just it it utterly and completely floors me. And that's where I think we've become so disconnected from each other as humans that that you know that that could be the you know the thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's it, it's it sort boggles of me too. But yeah, it's weird, <laughs> isn't it? It really is. It really um, is. I mean, that's a, if, I'd say, if I could have one superpower, it would be going into the heads of other people to see how they're making sense of things. 
not to laugh at them or to, or to rail at them or to be snarky, but just because I'm so curious. What's the internal logic they're using to make sense of what they do? I think that's just so fascinating. Yeah, I don't know if you'd find much internal logic there. I think you'd find <laughs> pure emotionally based decisions on external expectation and measures. Right, Maybe. but that would but that would still have some internal logic. I mean, in other words, something there, hey, hmm. together. Yeah, by definition, there'd be something, even though it made no sense in the real world. Each of us has our own internal, you know, web of logic that we use to make sense of things. And again, as I said in the beginning, part of the problem is we tend to think that our internal web of logic is just the way things are, and that everybody else has the same one because, as humans, mm. we all do. Mm. And the truth is. Each and every one of us has our own subjective world in our head that is unique. Absolutely. I like it. What um, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? That's a really good question. I thought about that really hard. And I, I think it actually would be – it kind of goes to what you just said – don't measure yourself against anything out there. Really just do what you believe and really be tenacious and really stick to it. And don't doubt yourself on the levels that sort of the societal constructs out there would have you doubt yourself, mm. you know? And of course, being, I mean, each gender has their own different <laughs> social construct out there. And I think women have a much, a much more damning social construct out there, you know, having to look a certain way, having to act a certain way, having to weigh a certain amount. You know, I mean, I think, I think had I realized earlier on how much I was being constrained by the social construct of what it meant to be female, I would have, I would have been a much happier and more fulfilled person. <laughs> That's what I'd go back and tell my 20-year-old self. It's a social construct. Don't believe it. Um, I've come to realize that now. I did not know that at 20. <laughs> I like it. What, if, it was your last, if it was your last meal, what would you request? You know, it's really funny. That's the only one I can like actually answer without having to think about it. If I had a last meal, which made me sad to think about. Mm. I thought about this, and then it made me really sad because, like, oh, my God, it's the last one. It would actually be lobster i love lobster just a steamed lobster with butter it would be a salad with blue cheese dressing that i could dip in very little dressing because i don't like a lot of dressing on a salad it would be a really good like yukon gold potato very small with sour cream and chives it would be broccoli and spinach and then for dessert it would be boysenberry pie they'd be very careful that there was absolutely no sugar in the crust because the crust has to be totally savory and then a little bit of vanilla ice cream um, and that would be it. <laughs> I could actually answer that question. That's an awesome answer. <laughs> yeah, that is my answer. If you could hand down one book to um, a future generation, what book would it be? Other than your own, of course. Mm, that one, yeah, that's, that's a really tough one. And I actually don't have an answer for that. Because there's so many, much out there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would really, I can think of all the books I personally love, but I can't think of one that feels like this sums absolutely everything up. Really. Have you read a book would, recently that's changed your mind on something? Mm -mm. I don't think so. No, um, I can't. Uh-uh. I don't think no. so. No. no. Okay. I wish the, I had. <laughs> no, look, if I was asked that question, the only thing I could come up with is a book that I've currently read or recently read that is, um, you know, just have been super fascinating interest. Um, and there has been one recently that I, I read about, and I can't think of the name now, but um, mm -hmm. it was about the, the gut uh, microbiome, um, and it was just fascinating, so... Um, and I'm sure yours will change mine, so I'm going to stick the link in the show notes. How can people best reach out to you and find out more about yourself? Uh, I am really pretty easy to find. My website is just wiredforstory.com, and that is where I am. If you, if you just put my name into Google with quotes, I will come up immediately, and I am totally available on my website. You can email me from there if you want to. I'm just my name at Twitter, you know, at Lisa Cron uh, on Twitter, and um, – 
And that's it. I'm not on much. Uh, I'm, I don't think I'm on yeah. any other social media actually at the moment. No, we'll stick the um the link in the show notes for that one. This is episode nine hundred and seventy eight at thehiddenwide.com. Wow. So find out all the show notes there. We've uh, we've shared many of stories on this, Lisa, up until this one. Yay! Yeah, that's which a is, lot. I'm which impressed. is um, oh, it's the it's the best gift in the world to be able to interview the likes of of great minds like yourself. You know, it's just amazing what I what I learned from all that. So thank you and thanks for sharing. And guys, check it out at thehiddenwide.com. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon